At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Fast Money starts right now live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York's Times Square. I'm Scott Wapner in tonight for Melissa Lee. Our traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Mark Tepper, Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast. Stocks stalling out, but UBS's Keith Parker says don't worry. New highs are coming, and he'll tell you where to find the best bargains in the market right now. Plus, the GE shocker, the stock falling back below $10 a share. We'll tell you what the CEO said not that long ago that has investors so worried. But first, we start with global growth fears weighing on the minds of investors. Hedge fund manager Kyle Bass, just the latest to sound the alarm. Listen. So it looks to us like Southeast Asia uh, is headed for a recession in 2019. Europe's headed for a recession in 2019. And the U.S., the kind of fiscal impulse from our tax uh, stimulus is going to wear, be wearing off towards the end of 2019. Where I think the U.S. will, you know, the, the world's not going to have a recession and the U.S. is keep growing. Uh, so I think you're going to see the U.S. have you, a minor, uh, minor pullback in 2020. Are you, are you betting on U.S. stocks? Um, I'm not. I think when I, given the scenario that, that, that I just gave you, uh, what I think is likely to happen is U.S. interest rates are going to head back to zero in 2020. All righty then. So should Wall Street still be worried about a global slowdown and is the best already in the stock market this year? Tim Seymour. Well, I, I don't think you know, Kyle Bass is a smart guy, a uh, guy that likes to also be on, on the bearish side, at least as it's related to the global economy. I and mean, he's been talking about Asia for a long time. It's actually been right. But this is the point. Um, is it really a surprise to us that China's been contracting in terms of their PMIs? We've had uh, a total raft of data, whether it's Singapore last night is, is three straight months sub 50. Taiwan, Korea the night before were at three and a half year lows on their PMIs. I think we know this. Now, the question is how much of that is really just the confidence level that came out of the trade war? Um, certainly those most exposed to cyclicality. Certainly you could say that with Taiwan, with semiconductors, et cetera. Um, this this is where we are, though. I mean, if you think about this, six months ago, we were talking about the world overheating. We were talking about actually the Fed have to step in and be too hot. I don't think things have changed that dramatically. I realize that data has priced this in. But no, I don't think we're going to be at zero rates next year. But let's be really clear. When we were worried about uh, world overheating, it was really just the U.S. It was really just the course of our trajectory and the course of our rate increases. And it was not really the focus in Europe. People were worried that they were taking uh, QE off the table too quickly. And in Asia, we know that there's some just really systemic issues there. So I think the biggest takeaway from what Kyle Bass had to say there is that whole notion of decoupling. What he's saying is, is that if Asia is going to be headed into a recession, if Europe is already on its way to a recession, the notion that the U.S. is going to avoid that is probably slim to numb. The one issue that I take right there is that he said he expects U.S. stock to have a mild pullback. Well, here's the thing. We had a 20 percent peak to trough decline in the Q4. We've given you know, we've made a lot of that back in just the back. first. Yeah. In the first back. two uh, months of the year or so. Uh, I think the chances, whatever you think mild is, I mean, the chances of a retest of the low, if we have Asia and Europe in recession in the back half of this year, is very high. So I'm, I'm curious, though, we talked about zero percent interest rates. I, I mean, 
I don't really see that happening. It could, absolutely could. Does that mean there's a put in the market, though? There, ha- there was a Fed put for a long time when interest rates are zero. I mean, isn't that the reason, isn't, isn't that the principal reason that we went from Christmas to where we are now? Because of a belief that Powell had your back, so to speak, yet again? Well, I think it was that he stopped pressing on your neck as opposed to having your back. I don't know, just to pick a slightly different metaphor. But for a long time, remember the, you know, the Tepper rally was all predicated on zero interest rates. David, with all due respect. Yeah, not me. Not me. Oh, oh, right. (laughs) Smart Tepper. So I don't know. I don't know if that means then that is there another put there? I don't I don't think we're going to see the zero interest rates this year, but we could. Zero interest rates. I mean, I I think that look again, I I think zero interest rates is a concept that he's talking about because we're not going to zero Mm -hmm. interest rates at the lows uh, before the elections. We're at 136 in the summer of 2016. Um, We're not going to zero. And in fact, how about the U.S. deficit that we're running? Do you think people want to buy our debt in a slowing economy? You think the 10 years going to go to 136 again? I don't think so. How about copper that's trading at three bucks? It's basically at 18 month highs. How about oil? It's at 65 bucks. These aren't telling me that the world is going out of business. No, I mean, part of the implication, strength. sorry, part of the implication Bass makes is that the Fed's next move is a cut, if not more than one, because of, as Dan said, the idea that you could decouple yourself just falls through the floor. Yeah, I mean, I think Janet Yellen even said the same thing, that the Fed's next move could be a cut. I just, I don't see that happening anytime soon. I don't think economic data in the U.S. is, is that bad. It's definitely deteriorating. It's not great. But at the same point in time, economic data is not bad. Um, All we really need is is we need uh, we need another positive catalyst right now for U.S. stocks. I mean, the Fed is on the sideline. Check. Um, What's that going to be then? What's that going to be? What's that catalyst going to be? We need a trade trade deal, deal and we need earnings growth to resume. I mean, right now, forward expectations and guidance, everything is so low, but that means the hurdles are low. So, you know, once we get a trade deal done and and earnings growth can actually resume, I I think the market is going to go higher. You don't think uh, that's already in the market, that this notion that you're going to get a trade deal? People have already started I to say quality news. I think in the market. I do. I do. But one thing about that, though, if we do get a trade deal, Kaibos talking about uh, uh, problems, you know, slow down in Asia, they're going to be just as much, if not more, a beneficiary than we. So I could see the, the convergence being from their economies improving. I, I think you're actually going to see a, a rebound in China, personally. I mean, China... Well, they're going to stimulate the... They are. Yeah, you know, so they they are stimulating. There, right? Fiscal, monetary, credit. So, I mean, there's certainly an opportunity for China to rebound. And, and when that demand from China rebounds, that's going to help the other international economies as well. So, um, you know, I'm not as pessimistic on China. I still feel like, though, this is, Dan, a, a now what market, right? Yeah. yeah, this big move. There's optimism about trade. Now, maybe some of that today is a, a little more tempered. The economy's not great. So what gets so, you to so, that So let's next talk about the trade deal. Okay, so let's say, what, what have we heard out of China so far is they're going to buy more of our stuff, okay? Well, what's been our stuff that actually had these tariffs? They've been going to other, you know, they've been filled in other locales, right? So when you think about it, we're just kind of pushing from one point to the next. If we don't have global growth, China just told us overnight that six and a, a 6.6% growth last year is going to be between 6 and 6.5. Six and our friend Peter Bookbar says, don't look at that number. Actually, just look at the trajectory, because that's where it's been going for about 10 years or so. So 
if you don't have China growing, even if you have a trade deal, even if we are able for them to buy more of our stuff, it's going to be coming away from some other place where they were buying it before. So well, to me, I'm just saying that if you have Europe just stagnating and you have Asia just really dealing with a lot of excess, the likelihood that the U.S. is going to pull us out, the globe out, is just not very likely. I, uh, there's no Pollyanna view here. A lot of bad stuff can happen. There's a lot of risks out there. But we let's again, we've crossed the Fed off the list. We've 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 said trade deal. Think about what the trade the trade deal did. It basically took global synchronized recovery one year ago and took confidence out of the market, which meant capex spending was off the table. It meant business confidence was off the table, and that's around the world. Um, I'm not saying that that reverses immediately, but to to say that a, a solution to that and to be clear, what is this trade deal? This trade deal leaves us exactly exactly back where we were. Chinese are getting what they want. Um, the administration is probably getting what they want. I'm not sure we're getting what we want, which is protection of IP and technology and, and control of the Internet for the 21st century. We're not going to solve that. You think the market cares about the deal itself as long as it just gets a deal? You think the market no, cares the, about the, the quality, quality of, the, of the deal? No, I don't. Well, think of, Scott, go back to December of 2017. We had this tax cut. We had this huge rip from mid-December into the highs in January 26, 2018. What happened after that? We literally dropped 10% in the next three weeks. And then we spent the rest of 2018 really churning, right? And then once we got back to those prior highs, we dropped 20%. So if you take out some of the extreme movement, there's a really strong likelihood that since that tax cut, all that fiscal stimulus, which was supposed to be the massive catalyst, we've been going sideways for about a year and a half now. But what, what was that sideways about? It was absolutely about the Fed, and it was absolutely about trade. So Jan 26, 2018, is when markets peaked. EM has a blow-off top. Sentiment and, and positioning was so overly ebullient. So, you know, to me, uh, again, I don't know that we have to replace that, and I would agree like everybody here. We're late cycle. We're seeing slowing growth. Earnings are hardly impressive. Um, but to tell me that it's falling off a cliff so dramatically, I think Europe's data for the short run is actually bottomed. Uh, and I think China's data for the short run is absolutely bottomed. There's going to be a view as well, and there, there already is, really, that, that earnings are going to trough here in the first quarter. If you get a trade deal, you get a better corporate outlook, sentiment rises, earnings estimates go up, guidance is lifted, earnings are better, stocks rise. Is that- it's virtuous. It's a virtuous thing. And, and I think uh, don't discount the Fed. I think everyone here would probably also say I, I certainly believe that the Fed could be not that far away from stepping back into a hawkish tone. And that's the biggest fear I have. All right. Our next guest says this year's big market run isn't over just yet. Let's bring in Keith Parker. He's the head of U.S. equity strategy at UBS. Welcome. It's good to see you. Good to see you uh, heard, I, I presume, part of this conversation. And you heard what Kyle Bass uh, has to say. Why do you have a, uh, a bullish uh, nod? Yeah, I think if you rewind back to your comments, global PMIs peaked in December of 2017. Typical timing of a cycle would point to a July trough anyway. And what's driven that slowdown in global growth? It's been a collapse in trade activity. Two-thirds of the slowdown in Europe and China driven by that collapse in trade. So what starts that external demand stimulus to us is some outcome of a positive trade deal. And you get that restarting of the growth engine at a time where the Fed is on pause to take us to new highs in the second quarter. You don't think we pulled forward a sizable amount of the gains that we could have realized for the, for the latter part of this year? We've got 20% from the bottom. Yeah, our, our call was that we get about 10% from the re-rating in the multiple. And, and years after big P.E. declines like we saw in 2018, you typically get about a third back, and that's where we are. And so for us, the next leg higher needs to be next 12-month earnings peaked in August. 
and we need that, that roll up as growth starts to resume to, for new highs. Where, where do you think that comes from, Keith? Uh, what sector is, is at least most um, you know, likely to rebound from what has been this, this stagnating growth? Yeah, I think it's, it's been well, energy, which we've seen uh, contribute about a third of the decline in the earnings estimates. So we like that as a laggard theme. Uh, and then on the leader side, we have tech and, and healthcare as that that's sizable growth. And then the consumer, which we do see some weakness in the first quarter, is key. And again, uh, some sizable growth in that, in that sector as well. What do you make of, of sort of what's been going on in tech? Sort of a below-surface story. Software um, and semis doing the bulk of the heavy lift while the FANG names have sort of not sat it out, but yeah. have underperformed those other areas. What does that tell you about that sector? Yeah, I think on the semis front, I would put that in the, in the theme of the too much was priced in in the fourth quarter and you've had the bounce and the re-rating on the expectations that just stabilization and some uh, hope for the second quarter. I think software is that theme of, of leaders where there is still strong growth. We saw a few wobbles in, in recent days, but again, uh, and then on the, on the FANG side, it's been more selective. It hasn't been that broad-based bid for those stocks, but we have seen uh, you know, select good performance to start the year. Keith, is there a uh, specific area of healthcare that you like, or is it the, the sector in general? Yeah, we, we've been tilted more towards the, the equipment and the growth side, and, and selectively on the value, we do see some in, in biotech and, and parts of pharma that we do still see as relatively cheap. But in aggregate, uh, we do see that as a core defensive growth uh, against uh, staples and utilities, which we see as, as fairly rich. Karen, you got one quick? Yeah, where do you think of financials and industrials in the spectrum of stuff that you like? Yeah, we, we've been tactically overweight industrials uh, against that same view that too much was priced in, into this year. It's been the best performing sector to start the year. Uh, and on the sidelines and neutral financials as we thought rates would take a little while to the extent, you know, as you mentioned, we get the, the Fed back talking rates a little bit higher in the summer. But in that meantime, um, you know, we've been a bit more selective in the space. All right, Keith, it's good to see you. Thanks for being here. Great. Thank you. All right, Keith Parker from UBS. Uh, you've been pointing out the weakness in the FANG trade, which we just, we just mentioned. Yeah, so we talk all the time. How do we get back to those prior highs? And, you know, the way I see it, we just covered two sectors that really need to do it. And to me, it's banks. Um, you know, I've never seen a market make new highs in, in all my years if it wasn't really led by banks and then broad based in like mega cap tech. And so, you know, yeah, they've, they've sat it out, but it's interesting that Fang, MAGA, whatever you want to call it, has picked its head up in the last week or so yeah. as the S&P has you stalled out. Yeah. Well, I call it MAGA. I think a yeah. lot of our viewers call it MAGA. It's the Microsoft, the Apple, the Google, the Apple, Amazon. You know. and, and they're starting to kind of move. <laughs> I would love if those were to be the leadership towards back towards 2900 in the S&P, that would be a very bullish thing. When, when have banks been leading this market higher? I mean, you're talking about banks have had to have been the answer for the last two years when the market's gone higher. And I don't think banks at any time has been a high conviction call, and yet the market's moved higher. Well, I mean, it hasn't. I mean, if you go back and look, where were the banks when we made those highs in January of 2018? They were at their post-crisis highs. So what I'm saying is to have a broad-based rally to make new highs. Think about where we're coming from now. The S&P was at 2350 just a couple months ago, and those prior highs are 2930. To go all the way up there and meaningfully break out of what is going to look like a very long consolidation, you're going to need some new leadership, and you're going to need MAGA to do the heavy lifting, and you're going to need the confidence in the banking sector to actually actually brought it out. 
You want to? I'm long the banking sector. As I mean, you know, today there was what? So you have confidence. I have confidence. I'm long the banking sector. I, you know, today was sort of <laughs> uneventful, but I I like the space, and I think if the economy is doing well, and I do think we'll get a trade deal, I think the banks will be fine. I don't. I mean, I don't think that there. I, I agree on MAGA. I mean, you know, I, I'm long Alphabet. Uh, that's my biggest position, actually. I agree, and it has sort of, you know, in the last secretly in the last week or two actually performed very nicely. All right. Coming up, check out shares of General Electric falling back below $10 a share. There they are, down 5% or thereabouts. CEO Larry Culp has a fiery interview today with GE Bear. Stephen Tuza will tell you what he said that caused that stock to move, plus transport's in trouble. That group getting crushed this week. Could be flashing a warning sign for the broader market. We'll explain that. And later, there's one stock Lighting up Danny Boy's trader radar today. There he is. Look at that. Nice. He, look at that, right? Nice. The suspense. <laughs> what some. is he going to talk about? We're live from Times Square in New York City. There is much more fast right after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Fast Money. Investors fleeing GE late today as CEO Larry Culp warned about the company's cash flow, shares down as much as well, 7%. They're down, you know, 5% or so now, back below $10. Morgan Brennan's got the details. Morgan? Hey, Scott. Well, shares of General Electric reversing course and plunging this afternoon after CEO and Chairman Larry Culp said, quote, significant known headwinds would mean industrial free cash flow will be negative this year. With respect to cash, you see we were at $4.5 billion last year. I think as we come into 19. For the year, we're going we're gonna to be in negative territory. This will be a, a year where we'll have both operating and non-operating pressures on our free cash. Culp saying there will be a step up in the restructuring spend and power and that that business will face headwinds for, quote, a couple of years. He does, though, expect the effects on cash flow to meaningfully lessen in 2020 or 2021. But the comments coming from J.P. Morgan's Aviation, Transportation and Industrials Conference where Culp did sit down with Stephen Tusa, the J.P. Morgan analyst, who's not only been the biggest bear on Wall Street on this company, but perhaps the most influential since his contrarian investment calls have been largely correct. So Culp adding that organic revenue will be up low to mid single digits thanks to strong performance in aviation and renewables, and that GE Capital is, quote, open to something creative with its insurance business, which investors will learn a little bit more about later this week at an event GE is hosting. The discussion today, though, offering the most detail yet about GE's outlook. Previous guidance, you'll recall, was pulled last fall, but investors are going to find out more on that next Thursday, March 14th, when the company is expected to disclose new financial targets. Meantime, Scott, shares did fall 4.5% today in today's trading session. Sending it back over to you. All right, Morgan. Thanks so much, Morgan. Brennan, the latest on GE. Uh, What do you guys make of this? I mean, this was very much a um, a reality check kind of by by Culp. Uh, Said, you know, look, we're we're trying, and these are my words, not his, you're trying to turn such a big sort of ship, and there's no sugarcoating. It's going to take 
a lot of time. The, the stock has had this big move from the bottom, 666, up to uh, 11 or whatever it was. Now it's back below 10. Well, you know, what's interesting is, I, I don't know, it was last week at this time we were getting a headline about they're thinking about reinstating the dividend, and we were all scratching our heads, like, why would you do that? Um, well, and, they did and, a deal. They paid down debt with the proceeds. Well, I, I, yeah, look, the, the biopharma deal I, I thought was a bit of a game changer for these guys, and it indicated not only did they, you know, they'll probably net out $20 billion, but they'll also, uh, they are taking on some of the pension liabilities at Stanaher. So, I mean, I, I, think, I think things are in a very different place, and I think Larry Culp is, is giving people some sense of confidence that while it doesn't turn around overnight, we see the pathway to, to, a, to call it normalcy on the fiscal side, not cutting these power deals that are lost leaders for the sake of cutting deals. Yeah. Uh, Morgan referenced the analyst who was having this conversation today with Culp, uh, Stephen Tews of J.P. Morgan. Nobody's been more right um, than him. Even, you know, a week ago, as the stock had had this big move, he sort of took his own temperature of where the story was and thought that it just was too overdone to the upside. He's got a neutral rating. He's you know, standing by his $6 target. It's one of those deals where can you really, for an analyst who's been so right, analysts get ridiculed all the time. Can you buy this stock until Stephen Tuza says it's okay to buy it? This is a tough stock to own right now. I mean, it was down like 50% last year, up 40% or so this year, all based on optimism of a, of a turnaround. But when you look at the valuation, I mean, it's basically trading at a, at a similar multiple to a company like Apple. And I know Apple is not without its own challenges. Obviously, they, they've got issues with innovating. iPhone sales are, are slowing. But at a similar multiple, I would much rather own a company like Apple than a company like GE. So I'll just say this. From a trading perspective, where did the stock, after that Danaher uh, deal was announced, where did it top out at 12 bucks? That was where it broke down on its way down to 670 or so. It almost got to Tusa's price target um, in December. And when you talk about it, Morgan just said the next time they're going to give guidance is going to be in mid-April, prior to April expiration. And if you're looking at trading it, if you're a viewer of this show, and the idea of maybe buying it and, and kind of catching a falling knife on the way down from 12 to whatever, you could actually look to the options market. They look dollar cheap. The April 10 calls, which are going to catch earnings, are about about 65 cents, that's six and a half percent of the stock price. This is a stock that's moving around three, four percent a day as it is. So there's ways to do it with defined risk. What about if not GE, then what in the industrial space? Care? What do you what do you own? Well, I own in the industrial space. I own um, URI, uh, which I like a lot, even here. I also I do own GE. I own leaps of 20 because I want to I want to give it enough time to see whether he can turn it around. But uh, I also want to know exactly what I can risk. And I, I think he will turn it around. But URI is my biggest industrial. Uh, I think the earnings multiple at GE is not, is not what this is about. I mean, and again, if he's at six bucks, these guys, we've fresh data, whether you trust GE or not, but we've actually got some data points. I mean, you're talking about 70 cents in earnings in 2019. You can do the math. I don't, I don't think the multiple means anything. I think some of the parts mean something. Um, and, and, you know, I think this is a company still with $121 billion in revenues. That, that may not mean anything if you've got pension liabilities that you have no idea about. And you don't know where the debts are going. But um, I think this company, if given time, is showing that if free cash flow is even at 4%, they can get back to some meaningful place. On the is there field. another quick uh, industrial that you like? So I, you I, would, I would take Caterpillar. I mean, it, it's, been, it's been beaten up pretty heavily. Um, double downgrade, I believe it was last week. I think the valuation is very attractive. And I do think at some point you are going to see construction rebound. I think we, we should get an infrastructure bill at some point here domestically. So I think that it's a good buy at this point. Okay. For more on General Electric, what's next for the stock? Head over to CNBC.com. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. Yep, that's what the transports look like this week. And they could be flashing a major warning sign for the broader market. 
we will explain. There's much more Fast Money right after this break. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest-cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk, text, and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. I think actually initially our our impact was perceived to be less. But um, all of us have some mix of government business. uh, And then it's just the overall... Um, impact on the broader economy and uh, consumer confidence uh, when when you have that kind of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. 800,000 people uh, on furlough is a lot of people, so uh, you have to expect that there's some uh, uh, impact on travel demand. All right, that was Southwest Airlines CEO Gary Kelly earlier today on CNBC as the airlines still facing turbulence after the government shutdown. That group has struggled in the last month. What's more, they have weighed heavily on the transports which are now in a correction, an eight-day losing streak, underperforming the broader market. Bob Pisani at the New York Stock Exchange to break it down for us, Bob. Hello, Scotty. Good to see you. You know, it's true the transports are more than 10% off the historic highs they hit in September, but the market, including transports, had rallied big time from the December lows. Now, remember, the recent weakness, particularly in the transports, has been going on, as Scott mentioned, for the last couple of weeks. The S&P is up 1% since February 21st. Trucking stocks are down 7% since the last week of February. Airlines are down 4%. Railroads have been relatively stable. They're just down 1% as a group. So what exactly is going on? Well, you heard over there, airline executives are warning about some weakness in the wake of the government shutdown. And fuel costs have risen. That would impact yields. On recent earnings calls, several transport companies like CSX, Norfolk Southern, and United Airlines did mention geopolitical risks as well. However, most companies seem to be fairly positive on customer demand, at least the ones I heard on the earnings calls. Much of this appears to be the markets in general topping out after a huge run. Remember, the S&P is up 11% this year, and the transports have held up very well since the beginning of the year. The railroads are outperforming. They're up 19% since the start of the year. Trucking and airlines are performing about in line with the broader markets since January 1st. But in the past week and a half, other 2019 leaders besides the transports have stalled out. So semiconductors, for example, banks, industrials, and the small cap Russell 2000, all market leaders this year, they're all flat to down in the last two weeks. This tells me that the market's getting expensive and that we are reaching the limits of the benefits for the trade deal and that some parts of the market, like tech and energy, are a bit overbought. Back to you, Scott. All right, Bob. Thanks so much. Bob Pisani there for us eight days in a row. 
We're well, concerned about you, that? It, I, I tell you what, I look at the transports. They're up 13.5% this year. They've outperformed the S&P. You can pick your spots. It's been a weak run. Uh, we've had some global macro issues. Uh, I look at airlines, and they're trading again back to we're going through a recession. Um, I look at Delta. That's a, that's a recession multiple for the best-run airline uh, at a time when I don't think that that's what's going on. So um, if you look at airlines over the last couple of years, they're incredible trading stocks, folks. I mean, this is fast money. Um, You've had trading ranges. You've had about nine trading ranges up or down of 20 percent or more in Delta. Um, I take a look at the stock at the bottom of the range here, I I think. To buy. To buy. Yeah. Well, they just reaffirmed today, right? Six to seven dollars a share. I mean, that, as you're saying, it's not a it's not a crazy multiple. Obviously, airlines trade different multiples than other industries. But Still, to add long delta, I like it here. It's not like the rails have done bad by any stretch. I mean, this has basically been an airline-led um, decline. But no one's worried about just this, the sheer weakness in transports and what the tell is there. You made the a good point, market. Scott, earlier in the show. You said something about, you know, just kind of digestion or maybe kind of pulling forward some of the gains that we might have had from um, a, a supposed trade deal. And I think all of us would be sitting here shocked if the trade deal was more encompassing than we expected, you know, uh, all intents and purposes. So it, at some point, it's just priced in, right? So you kind of overshot. I look at like eight consecutive down days. It's only down a couple percent or something like that. It really is a, a digestion. And then you got to think about it. As we get into April, that's when we're going to start to see earnings pre-announcements if we have them. And if not, then we get to the middle of the month and you have earnings. And that's really the next big catalyst for the market. So, so I think there's a huge opportunity with FedEx right now. I think the valuation is really attractive on FedEx. I think the, the threat of Amazon taking over and delivering all these goods is really overdone. So I think a lot of the bad news is already priced into FedEx. And, and as e-commerce uh, essentially doubles over the course of the next three to four years as a percentage of total retail sales, I think a company like FedEx is going to play a big part in, in delivering those goods. I, I just want to make one point about FedEx. It had that massive gap, the 52-week lows. It was in the height of that sell-off back in December 12, uh, 18, I think it was. And the stock just got cratered and it gave a horrible guidance. This is going to be a really important tell. They're going to report on March 19th. That's one I'm looking at. Obviously, people think it's cheap. It was cheap in December. It's cheap here. It hasn't really outperformed, but that's something to keep an eye on because they may be um, a good tip in what's going on. And if you want to be a bear, I mean, you can actually look at the IYT. And if you take Boeing out of it, I mean, this has actually been pretty sloppy. Boeing has been the the prince of the group. And certainly I think it should be. Uh, But again, back to the airlines, Scott, I think the airlines are their own problem. People are worried about airlines running their business efficiently. Um, that's the story. It's about capacity for the airlines. I don't think it's about but it's that. Not, you know, last week we had Booking.com. Remember the old Priceline? That gave really not a great outlook. We saw Marriott had some not so great things to say. So you think about it and you say the quarters that they all just reported, that's backward looking. The guidance was not anything to go in there and say, all right, it's all clear here. So you put it all together. And if we're talking about recessionary environments in Asia and in Europe, these guys all get a lot of their sales from over there. So it's not just about the U.S. when I'm thinking about transport. It is a global thing. And if we are seeing decelerated growth in those important regions, um, is it a forward-looking thing? Are we about well, to Delta see Delta reaffirming that? today yeah. is not a backward-looking thing. No, I understand thing. that. But they also reaffirmed in the beginning of, uh, I don't know, in January. But Delta they, reaffirmed they, they business. Guidance. They reaffirmed business class seats. They reaffirmed like their most expensive and their most business-oriented forward. Lo- I mean, First week of the year, Delta gave guidance and, and it creamed the stock, right? So the reaffirming the bad guidance that they gave two months ago, have at it. Let's wait until, I'm just when saying. Goes, have at it. Well, no, I mean, I mean, but, you know, I mean, is that like talk to the, the hand kind yeah. of yeah. 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 Like, I'm done? Yeah. I'm done? Have it here. All right. Coming up, Tesla shares are sinking again today. But if the charts are any indication, the stock might be ready to make a major U-turn, we'll explain. Plus, the FDA commissioner behind a major crackdown on e-cigs stepping down today. 
We'll tell you what it means for the smoking stocks. More Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money, the future of tobacco and CBD regulation now hanging in the balance following the sudden resignation of FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb late this afternoon. Let's go to Aditi Roy out in San Francisco with the details. And it was quite a surprise, Aditi. It was a huge surprise, Scott. Tobacco and e-cigarette use among youth is Scott Gottlieb's hallmark issue. And starting last year, he launched an aggressive campaign against companies like Juul, Altria, and British American Tobacco. Tobacco stocks like Philip Morris as well, moving higher upon today's news. Altria, which took a 35% stake in Juul, you may remember last year, jumped as much as 3% on the resignation news before pairing its gains. Last week, Gottlieb also announced plans to hold public meetings in April on CBD adding a comment that it might take one to two years to finalize regulations on CBD products. Now, cannabis stocks didn't appear to react significantly to the news. Incidentally, the commissioner was also on our air for a live interview on Squawk Box this morning to talk about the agency going after 15 retailers for allegedly selling tobacco products to kids. He also talked about the possible consequences businesses could face. There are actions that we can take now. We can send corporate-wide warning letters. Um, we can certainly sanction individual stores. We have a lot of civil um, penalties that we can impose. We've never imposed a criminal sanction, but we certainly have imposed civil sanctions in the past. And we have gone as far as issuing, for example, corporate warning letters in other situations across our regulatory portfolio, and something that's certainly open to us in this situation. The big question, of course, now among industry watchers, whether or not the agency will carry out those enforcement measures that he just talked about and regulations against e-cigarettes. Keep in mind, Gottlieb still has a month left on the job to finish what he started. Scott, back to you. Okay, Aditi, thanks so much. So what could this mean for both the cigarette and pot stocks? resident expert. Well, I'll tell you, Scott, I, I think for in terms of CBD uh, regulation and what the FDA's role is, it, it was so fluid and it's been so fluid that I think this is doesn't have any implication at all. Um, I'm not going to try to read the tea leaves on Scott Gottlieb's resignation. He's talked about family issues. He's got three young kids. He's commuting from Connecticut to Washington. It's very possible that's what's going on here. Um, I do think this is a guy who's been very hard against uh, vaping, e-cigarettes, uh, the tobacco companies, period. And, and I think in that regard, there may be a little bright light for those guys here, but I, I don't think the environment really changes. Uh, and again, back to pot stocks, specifically CBD, which still, although you've legalized hemp federally in, in terms of the ability to move it across 18 wheelers from state to state, you still don't have definition for how that fits into products. Ultimately, I think it's a really exciting market. We know the kind of growth that's going on in CBD. It's great for the multi-state operators who have footprints right now to be you know, basically selling those products when the FDA gets their act together. And I agree on the multi-state operators. I think that's where there's a huge potential right now. I mean, especially if regulation decreases um, and, and suddenly these multi-state operators have access to bank financing so they can really grow their business. I think there's huge potential there. For our clients, we prefer companies like Constellation Brands right now where there's actually some diversification in revenues because for us it is still a speculative play at this point in time. Okay, still ahead, Tesla in turmoil again as a top analyst calls for that stock to drop 30%. We'll tell you what has them ringing the alarm. Plus, this cloud stock is up nearly 20% this year and trading near its all-time high. There's a key event in the next two weeks that could rain on that rally, though. We've got the details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of NEO. Sinking 11% after reporting earnings moments ago, the so-called Tesla of China reporting a wider-than-expected loss and slowing deliveries on its SUV. 
Despite the after-hours move, shares are still up more than 40% this year. This was a company focused on recently on 60, right? 60 yeah, so, so we were talking about it the day after 60 Minutes. It broke out to a new, you know, it above a its range. Or something. Yes, it was trading at about nine bucks, and then it kept on going. And I think a lot of people saw it the way we saw it on the desk that night. It's kind of a call option on the EV market in China. They're a local uh, manufacturer here. When you look at the guidance that they gave, you know, I mean, would the stock be down 11 percent if it wasn't where it was trading? Probably not. You know, they're talking about some uh, some demand that was pulled forward in front of the subsidies um, in 2019 in China. So we've seen this all play out with Tesla over the last few years. I think the most important thing is this is a company that delivered 10,000 cars last year. It literally is a call option. They haven't done anything yet. They're just scratching the surface. And, uh, and I think at this at this at this multiple and really no earnings. And remember, there was another Tesla killer, uh, and we'll talk about Tesla. I think Tesla's killing themselves. But how about Candy? Candy is another one of these Chinese names that everybody thought was going to take over the EV market over there, uh, and I, I, you know that was a disaster of a call. You want to do Tesla now? Yeah, let's do it. You, you have a lead in well, here. Go ahead. You I mean, you me? already, you know. Well, I mean, Tesla's hitting another another speed bump I mean, today you know. after Barclays put out a kind of a, a bearish break. note, right? Mm-hmm. So um, uh, ultimately, the question is, what's going on with Tesla? Okay. <laughs> Should I keep Why going? Why Tarzan in the show? I don't know. It's the call of the day. He's yelling. Tarzan's yelling the call, I guess. I don't know. Okay. We have a lot of things that don't make sense. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you say. Uh, Tesla. Barclays cut the price target today. Call of the day, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Is there... Yeah, sometimes they don't run the sound. Right, so, yeah. okay. so, yeah. <laughs> so before me, I mean, what are we, like Laurel and Hardy? What's going on? Okay, so you're, you, you probably wanted to ask me... Um, do, does this imply that there's new news out on Tesla that should have the street either cutting their prices? And ultimately, with all the bad news in Tesla over the last three weeks, um, you know, I'm kind of surprised it's taken a lot of the guys in the street this long to downgrade. Think about the sequence we've had over the last couple months. You've not only had major defections in terms of a CFO, uh, a general counsel. We've had you major like price- 40 plus executive departures. Questions about the reliability. We've had price cuts across the board. The vehicles, we have deliverables, demand issues. Well, they changed right. the strategy. The reach getting rid of. The, I thought that was very big. Well, Tim's been on this for a long time, but. Well, okay. So look, the, the the bottom line here, folks, is you can attack this story from many different angles. I think the biggest one um, is that most people don't talk about. People take it as gospel that there's always going to be organic demand for this Model Three. Um, guess what? Uh, I think first quarter, if you look at the March delivery numbers that are being expected now, based upon the delivery numbers we just got, there's no way these are going to hit the eighty thousand that they said they're going to have for the first quarter. Why do you think that they're sending cars to Europe and to China right now? Um, why do you think that uh, the thirty-five thousand dollar car, which you really can't build for 35000 is something that actually is, is truly the one that they claim to be putting out there. Um, to me, this is a company that not only has demand issues, but the, the, the balance sheet is the front and center issue right now. I'm not saying that's not a great car. I'm not saying that the technology isn't something that's been proven innovative. I'm not saying that there's not a lot of happy Tesla owners out there, but this stock has a cross current of issues right now that for all the short sellers, I actually think we now have that moment. So this is the part of the show where Guy Adami would come in here and he'd say, I'm looking over Dan's shoulder at his chart here, and I've identified this on numerous occasions that 250 is the level where shorts <laughs> kind of cover and where new longs step in, and you have this nice trading range between 250 and 350. Is that a good guy, Dami? Uh, not, 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 not at all. I'm glad you told Dan us who it was, or otherwise we wouldn't know. But yeah. 
Do you but believe that, or you're just channeling no, guys? No, what I'm saying, but it, it's worked for the last three years. I mean, like that—that's the thing. Two fifty is on the on the low end, and when it gets to three twenty-five, three fifty, that's where you lighten up. I mean, it's been but a the good stock price. Stock the stock price to me is not representative of anything fundamental. Well, it wasn't said, on the way up. You said something a second. I don't want to gloss over it. You said this. You think this is the moment finally yes. for the shorts? Yes. Because I, I first do. of all, you. How do you explain a company that's doing everything they can to deal with a cash flow crunch? Uh, there is a cash flow crunch here. They cut CapEx by 60%. This is a growth company. They're, they're basically cutting all staff. There's an announcement that came out today that they're cutting technicians and service folks on a car that, by the way, if you've owned it so far, they've showed up nicely in your parking garage and fixed your car. I'm not so sure, based upon that kind of an announcement, they're going to be there tomorrow. They're doing a lot of little things that tell me they're really trying to front load sales, trying to get cash flow into the system because they just made a major convert bond payment. And I don't think that they have the capital on the balance sheet that, that they, anything close to what they claimed at the end of the fourth quarter. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're firing employees right now, yet I believe it was last quarter they had to recruit unpaid volunteers to actually deliver their vehicles. So, you know, there's obviously a demand issue right now, and I, I think that's the biggest problem. Obviously, there's a lot of C-level executive turnover, but demand is a big problem. When your big announcement is, a, is an announcement that you are going to reduce the price of your vehicle and shorten the range of the battery, that does not speak well of demand for well, the product. They also cut it on three models, um, not the Model 3. Yeah. That's clever the way I just said that. But the most important thing is those other ones are cash cows. Why are you cutting prices on them? It makes no sense. You know, and, Unless demand isn't there. And by the way, making a car for $35,000 and losing 10000 is not great business. And, and that, to me, is what's going on. Okay. Coming up, Salesforce seeing a bit of a reversal today after being down as much as 3%. There's something about the move that has one of the traders all fired up. I'm going to explain. We're live from the NASDAQ in Times Square. Much more Fast Money straight ahead. What's that noise? Well, it sounds like something is triggering Dan's trader radar. <laughs> Why don't you tell us what that is, well, Dan? Let's talk about well, Salesforce. They were, well, listen. Is that a new that thing? Cool. I don't, it's hot if it is. I haven't done <laughs> that. we got to keep it. If it's I've new, been here I want a lot. it. I've never done. Is that right. new? Well, Dan's one that's on my radar. One of the reasons that Salesforce is on my radar because this was a sector that obviously marched back from its December lows, made a new high well before the markets really got going here, um, and well before it looked like the markets were going to make a move back towards those prior highs. Look at that right there. That's the one-year chart of Salesforce. The stock has massively outperformed the S&P, obviously the Nasdaq too. Here, prior to the earnings last night, the stock was trading literally at an all-time high. The stocks, the whole space, Workday, Service, now they all got kind of creamed a little bit into that print. This stock was trading down on the guidance that they gave, but miraculously it only closed down 1.5% today. That's pretty good relative strength. But here's the thing. This is why this stock is on my radar. You saw that chart here. That could be an epic double top, at least near term. There's a couple things that I think investors should be concerned about. You know, Even though the management's amazing, the secular shift towards SaaS products, uh, government and in the enterprise is huge, that they are seeing a deceleration in their sales growth and their earnings growth. And with the stock up here now, it's a lot more expensive than it was two months ago, trading about 56 times expected 2020 earnings and about seven and a half times sales. That's pretty massive for a hundred plus billion market cap company. So to me, it should be on your radar. The idea of playing for a breakout here, given the guidance they just gave, let it digest a little bit. So then where, where on your chart then? 160. 160. Yeah, thanks, chart lady. 
But, but Dan's point about price to perfection, I, I think, is, is critical. And, and I think the comps get really, really tough for these guys. And I think you have a dynamic here where it's very difficult to, to, to expect the next leg higher in this name. I think, I think it's range bad. There's no way you're going to say that these guys aren't, aren't clicking on all cylinders. It was a great quarter. Um, but I think all the software guys right now have multiples that you know, I don't think you need to chase. And I actually think uh, from a price-to-sales perspective, though, the multiple on Salesforce is actually a lot more attractive than a lot of the other SaaS companies that are out there. We're talking a price-to-sales of 6.5 versus some of these are 8 or 9 right now. And the thing is, you know, especially with us being late cycle, all businesses are trying to eke out every last dollar of profitability. They're trying to be as efficient as possible. And Salesforce is one of those companies that gives businesses the opportunity to maximize their efficiency. So I still think there's upside from here. Okay, let's stay with the cloud stocks. Oracle, the last of those stocks to report earnings and options. Uh, traders uh, looking for a cloudy forecast. A cloudy forecast. Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, I mean, that's what they uh, said. Let's go look at Oracle because, the, uh, because this plasma? one is not a, a pure play. Over? Not a pure play on the cloud. Music, and they you know, would like to have siren? more and more. Guys, <laughs> my time to shine here. <laughs> They'd like to have more of the higher percentage of their sales radar, come from the cloud because they're seeing some of their legacy products grow much slower here. So today, kind of interesting on a day where obviously investors were digesting some of this guidance for one of the biggest cloud players. Um, options volume was one and a half times um, average daily volume in Oracle. And there's one trade that just kind of caught my eye, especially on a day that Salesforce was down. Looking out to March 22nd weekly expiration, there was a buyer of 2,000 of the 48.5, 46.5 put spreads. Only paying 20 cents for those. Those break even all the way down at 48.30, almost down 10%. That is a long shot. But I think it's really important to remember that this trader is risking 20 cents to possibly make $1.80 if the stock was 46.5 or lower on March 22nd. What are they possibly targeting? earnings that we're supposed to get in mid-March here. So maybe this is protection against the long. But here's the thing. This stock trades really, really well. And I'm going to show you over a couple of uh, charts. This is the one-year chart. Look at that massive double bottom here. The stock is really outperformed, but it's actually kind of just like Salesforce before it. It's kind of caught some resistance, at least from a technical standpoint, at that prior high. Look at this five-year chart. This is all, excuse me, this is the 10-year chart. This is a really beautiful um, uptrend here. Obviously, it's not a name that we talk about about a whole heck of a lot because it hasn't had this massive outperformance like names like Salesforce. But again, trading at about 15 times, you're seeing this consolidation here and it's kind of looks ready to go here. So to me, this is one I think you want to keep an eye on as we get into their earnings over the next couple weeks. This could be set for a breakout. All right, good stuff. For more Options Action, check out the full show every Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern. Great show. Sirens are blazing. Final (laughs) trades are next. Okay, let's do final trades around the horn we go, Timmy. Let's do final trades. We talked a lot about transports let's. tonight. I think Delta is right there in the airlines. That's best of breed, best valuation. Take a fly with that one. Is there an echo in here? I mean, <laughs> right? I hope so. Karen? We talked about Target last night pre-earnings. I actually think it's better today after these earnings and being up. I normally wouldn't buy a stock up, but I think the valuation is more attractive with the confidence they show in their business. Mark, don't call me David Tepper. <laughs> Salesforce makes businesses more efficient. So does HubSpot, so I'm buying HubSpot. Anyway. Yeah, I think there's nothing wrong with Salesforce. I don't think there's anything wrong with Oracle. I think you let that one come to you prior to their earnings, and that's where you buy it. Okay. Great stuff. Thank you. Thank Thanks you so much. Great we'll to have you back here. In. Five o'clock tomorrow night here at the NASDAQ Mad Money with Jim Cramer begins right now.
How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course. Get the limited-time offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses.